All right, what's up, everybody? We're going to get into it. Um, this is podcast 11, Protein Folding. Um, you know, this is an interesting one. We, you know, it's, it's important to understand this because uh, once you fold your protein, you then go ahead and you actually can um, modify it, which is what the next episode is going to be about. So let's talk about protein folding, right? There's two kinds of ways to fold a protein or how polypeptides spontaneously fold into their final structure, right? Polypeptide is just another uh, fancy way of saying protein. So polypeptides are long chains of amino acids. These can spontaneously fold into a structure via a few different ways, right? So the fast ways I sort of mentioned, right? Hydrophobic effects in amino acid interactions. The secondary structure interacts with itself and causes it to then lead into the this monomer um, or that's, you know, uh, uh, tertiary structure. But that's not always the best way for this protein to carry out its function. So there's other ways, slow ways of folding of the domains. And this is when it will interact with um, not only the, the fast ways, but also these other types of um, basically large uh, chaperone proteins that actively create an environment that puts it into the ideal um, structure for it to perform its functions. So, um, there's other things. There's these protein disulfide isomerases. These create stability in, a, in a, the cell in these, basically in these proteins by creating disulfide bonds. Um, it requires at least three to shuffle bonds, and these disulfide bonds help give proteins stability extracellularly. So protein disulfide isomerases help to create stability in a cell by disulfide bonds and shuffling. So you can imagine disulfide bonds, basically the protein getting folded and two sulfur groups meeting in a certain way, and then three of them meet, creating enough bond power to actually maintain that structure. And this increased structure and bond power creates stability extracellularly. So it's just something to keep in mind. So there's the fast ways and then the two slow ways. Those are the ones that I just mentioned. So let's talk a little bit about molecular chaperones. There's two kinds that you need to be aware of. These are proteins that can move across membranes. There's HSP70 and HSP60. So HSP70 binds to amino acids as they come out of the rRNA, right? So as basically the mRNA is reading in the cytosol, right, there's protein being pumped out into the ER lumen. That that uh, protein or polypeptide or amino acid um, chains get caught by this HSP70 and they get pushed into this hydrophobic um, environment, basically. And this confers stability to those hydrophobic um, amino acids so they don't prematurely fold, right? If you were to pump hydrophobic um, amino acids into the cytosol, they'd interact with a ton of water and get into this shape that is super... Uh, that might not be ideal for its final complete polypeptide sequence. So HSP70 provides this like microenvironment for this amino acid to then basically like full like enter into so that it doesn't prematurely fold, right? Another one is called HSP60, right? So 70, and now we're on HSP60. This is usually referred to as Grohl. And basically what Grohl can do is it, it can give this protein a very specific um, environment similar to HSP70, but it can either be hydrophilic or hydrophobic. It doesn't just have to be hydrophobic like with HSP70, right? So 
That's an interesting thing about molecular chaperones. It's something to be aware of. You should be aware of the specific types. But the general idea is as these polypeptide chains get pumped out, they enter these chaperones. You can think of it like a box. And in this box, regardless of how hot your room is, this box has, you know, it's humidity controlled, it's temperature controlled, it's super nice, and it's perfect for whatever enters the box. So that's what you should think about. These amino acids enter, and then they will confer the ideal environment for folding for the later, you know, downstream function of whatever that protein will be. So let's say there's proteins that need to be, that get made, and then our body's like, yo, like we actually don't need these. Like, so what do you do, right? You, well, you got to break them down. But how do you even target a protein to be broken down, right? So what do? So let's just talk about this. Let me give you some definitions. A proteasome breaks down proteins, okay? And proteins are targeted for a proteasome via ubiquination. That's the process of targeting a protein via tagging it to then be sent to a proteasome to later be degraded. This is going to seem like a lot. But I want you to follow me. I'm going to go slow, okay? Ubiquination. Here's what happens. E1, which is a type of protein, grabs ubiquinin and creates a high-energy ubiquinin, okay? E1 then transfers that ubiquitin to E2. E2, bound to that ubiquitin, binds to E3. E3 then transfers the ubiquitin from E2 to the protein. Okay, so let me start again. E1, you can think of, charges the ubiquitin and then binds it. E1 then transfers that charged ubiquitin to E2 and releases from it. You now have an E2 ubiquitin complex which binds to E3 <clears throat> and then E3 transfers the ubiquitin, the charged ubiquitin from E2 to the protein. Okay. Um, the ubiquitin is a, is a type of amino acid chain, basically, and what you should understand is that um, the ubiquitin gets ligated to proteins on ubiquitin's C-terminus, right? And it gets ligated to the proteins at the protein's lysine terminal, okay? So I just want to go over that one more time. Ubiquitin is a protein, and on it there is cysteine terminal. The ubiquitin gets bound to the protein here, and it gets connected to the lysine amino acid on its subsequent protein. So basically the protein's lysine gets bound to the ubiquitin's cysteine, okay? The chain is formed basically by alternating um, from there on, right? So on this ubiquitin, there's going to be the, the lysine at the end of it where it's unbound, and another ubiquitin is going to get attached to that cysteine or um, to that lysine on the ubiquitin, right? So I want you to imagine this, and I, I did a poor job of explaining this, I just realized, so I sort of want to go back, okay? Your ubiquitin one terminal is going to be, one end of that ubiquitin protein is going to have a cysteine and the other end is going to have a lysine, okay? The lysine uh, terminal is not, is going to get bound to subsequent ubiquitin C terminals, right? So you're going to create sort of this chain of ubiquitin, right? And these chains of ubiquitin is what targets proteins for the proteasome, right? It tags them 
as like, hey, these proteins need to get destroyed. Let's send this to the proteasome, okay? E3 is responsible for finding um, basically these sequences on the N-terminus of proteins for specificity of tagging, right? So hopefully this all makes sense. Basically, E3 is what is actively seeking out proteins that need to be degraded. And then I just sort of explained the process for ubiquination. I'm going to try to explain these big processes, but the general idea of a lot of this is like, yeah, you should understand how they work, um, but you don't necessarily need to memorize like the individual steps. There's going to be questions that ask you that, but with uh, you know step one being pass-fail now, it's, it's really more about uh, understanding the general idea of things, okay? So once the protein is tagged with uh, ubiquitin, uh, you know, it, it'll get sent to the proteasome. And a proteasome is made up of two parts. The inner part is for degradation, and then there's the outer two parts, right? So the upper part registers and attaches to ubiquitin, and then um, while actively unwinding the protein. So you can imagine this long protein with this ubiquitin head enters the top of this proteasome, and as it enters, it enters in single file. It doesn't just, it, and it unwinds this protein as it enters. And as it runs through this proteasome, you can imagine this proteasome is just like chopping up whatever comes through it, and the middle part degrades it into smaller peptides, right? And then after it degrades it, it spits it out the lower part of the uh, proteasome. And then once the protein is done degrading ubiquitin, it detaches, right? Um, and then the ubiquitin can then be reused at a later part. They'll be uncharged though, so they'll have to find an E1 and be recharged. So I hope you followed that part, right? So lysis so another thing that can happen is lysosomes can pick up proteins via endo endocytosis. And lysosomes are these like basically low pH vesicles with proton pumps that um, basically can hydrolyze proteins and fats, right? And when you hydrolyze something, you, you will break it down. So lysosomes, so proteosomes actively enzymatically break down proteins, whereas lysosomes create in a low pH environment. And if you remember, acids break down proteins and fats, right? They through hydrolysis. So lysosomes have proton pumps. They're basically just like vesicles with proton pumps that can uptake proteins. They get super acidic and then break down that protein. So let's say you're making a, you're having trouble, right? You're making a ton of protein, uh, or I guess I should say you're making a bunch of polypeptides, but you're not able to keep up with folding them. So a lot of them are getting folded improperly and things like that. Well, this is termed ER stress, right? And this is when you have um, too many proteins or too many amino acid polypeptide sequences, but you don't have enough um, uh, like chaperones to actively fold them well. So you get this thing called an unfolded protein response, which is when transcription, right, mRNA gets downregulated. You don't need to be making more proteins. Chaperone uh, transcription gets upregulated, right? So transcription that results in the formation of chaperones gets upregulated, and then lots of proteins are getting tagged uh, via you, this ubiquination process for degradation, right? You have a bunch of poorly folded proteins. Those need to get, we need to get rid of them. So we tag them with ubiquination to send them to the proteasome, right? And then we are downregulating mRNA uh, that would have been made to make more of that protein, but we upregulate mRNA that will make for chaperones to hopefully help fold some of these um, proteins so that we're not just in a complete waste. So this is like an interesting thing, right? So you can imagine at this point, like you're 
making a bunch of protein that's getting improperly folded. Well, improperly folded protein can make plaques. And this is actually one of the, um, I guess you could say, theories behind Alzheimer's is that there's ER stress um, resulting in uh, an unfolded protein response. And this contributes to plaque formation, which is when some proteins are left behind um, in a in a stable, they're like in a stable conformation, but in a poorly folded state. So they just basically build up; they can't be broken down, and uh, it results in these plaques that leads to Alzheimer's. So it's an interesting little pathology thing there that you can pick up. I hope that this was helpful. I think that the next one I want to do is uh, we'll talk about protein modification. So now that we folded these proteins, we're going to talk about how we can modify them so that they can um, serve specific purposes. Um, so we'll see you in the next episode, episode 12, Protein Modification.